Part 10. Summa Cum Laude. When graduation came, Shannon was on his worst behavior from the moment he landed in California. He hates California, and I'm unsure if he genuinely hates it or if it's just another example of him going out of his way to show me he dislikes something I love. He stayed with us in our house, and as soon as he walked in, he looked around the room. The house was spotless, and Daphne and I decorated the walls with our art. I had my favorite skateboards displayed alongside my vast collection of random musical instruments. The house was an extension of ourselves and the things we love. Taking it all in, he said, Hmm, less slovenly than I expected. Shannon wasn't enjoying himself and let it be known as often as possible. Luckily, you were more excited to be there. You were proud that I had finished school and were enjoying playing with my eight-month-old daughter, who was already starting to show her animated personality. We drove to the arena where my graduation ceremony was held, and Shannon rode with me. He hadn't mentioned anything about me finishing school, and he hadn't asked me about any of the classes or experiences I had. I realized that some of my expectations for his reactions to my success may be unrealistic, but an hour's worth of driving in silence is a perfect opportunity to make some small talk about the thing we were about to attend. When that small talk never happened, I decided to bring it up myself. I'm so glad school is over. It's been so stressful. I said without taking my eyes off the road. We had just pulled into the city, and I was hitting light traffic for the first time on the trip. I made a stupid closed-lip smile as I sat in the silence of him ignoring me. I tried again. I'm stoked I got these honors ropes. I worked hard to get them. What did you graduate with, cum laude? He asked without looking at me. He was people watching as we slowly passed the throngs of men and women busily weaving past each other on the sidewalks. I cringed a little. This was precisely what I stressed about every semester. I would graduate, but my brother would be able to take something away from that achievement and use that as his excuse for not being proud. Of course, he would automatically assume that if I had earned honors, it would be the lowest one I could get. No, actually, I got summa cum laude. I said, and then with added emphasis, the highest one. Mm. He said, slowly lifting his head in a single nod. I would look so stupid if I wore every special achievement I got from school. He said. I turned and looked at him to see if he was joking, but he was serious. He then listed off some of the things he'd have to wear and made it sound like the sheer weight of the material would make it impossible to walk the stage. The echoes of him reminding me I'd never be as good as him at anything. Well, I'm thrilled. I said, feeling that trigger activate, the one that makes me want to drink. I had significantly cut back on drinking and was going as strong as ever since meeting my wife several years earlier, but now I had that old familiar urge to drown out my disappointment with something deleterious and cold. I'm glad Dad is here to see it too. I want to give him my ropes. I couldn't have done this without him. I didn't even ask him to come to my graduation. He caught himself and paused briefly. I assume he realized it made him sound like he didn't appreciate you. I just mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's just school. Can you imagine if I made you guys come see me every time I graduated? By the second master's degree, who cares, you know? I couldn't wait to get out of the fucking car. I regretted inviting him. He was moving the field goal again. Now a bachelor's degree wasn't remarkable enough. A master's degree wasn't even good enough for him. Now it would take multiple master's degrees. I saw a window and took the opportunity. Man, multiple master's degrees. Sounds like a waste of time. I would rather have a doctorate. The wound was unmistakable. I could tell he wanted to defend himself but was biting his tongue. 
I learned early on that he loves dishing it out, but he never does well with getting it in return. He doesn't enjoy the bitter taste of his own medicine. Unfortunately, that kind of behavior on my part isn't medicinal as it cures nothing and only increases the tension between us. He changed the subject by turning around and getting his daughter's attention. Hey, Ollie, aren't you glad your mom's not here? I had forgotten she was even back there with how quiet she had been. You do so much better when she's not here. You have an opportunity to actually do things for yourself, for once. He and Olivia had been in California for only two days. This marked the fifth time he had attempted to convince her she was better off without her mom. Olivia never responded. She always looked away or played on her phone. When he wouldn't get the reaction he wanted out of her, he'd look at the closest person and say something like, Renee babies these kids. She'd wipe your butt still if you'd let her. He'd look at Olivia to see what reaction she would have. You could see the pain on her face mixed with embarrassment, and it would make me wonder if he could see it too. I hoped he was just blind to it because if he could see it and treated her like this anyway, that would be so much worse. I hadn't yet recognized that he did the same stuff to me about my mother. I just felt terrible for Ollie. Later that day, after I had walked the stage, I finally recognized his game. Daphne rode with you to the ceremony, and her parents drove down on their own. My in-laws can be difficult during stressful events. My mother-in-law rarely leaves the house and seldom makes long-day trips to the city. They were having a hard time finding parking, and they were taking their stress out on Daphne over the phone. My wife is a sweetheart, and she takes those interactions very seriously. Like me, she wants to make people happy and feels personally responsible if anyone is upset. After graduation, my in-laws were flustered by the city traffic and changing plans. They had decided to head back home, and Daphne had developed a shared anxiety. That stress was apparent on Daphne's face, and my brother saw his opportunity to share his mom-centric family advice. Your mom's giving you a hard time, huh? He asked, pretending to care. Yeah, they don't get out often, and I think they're overstimulated with the traffic. The graduation ceremony had ended, and pedestrians were filling the streets around the stadium. You should just write her off. Seriously, you don't need her. You guys should move to Colorado. He said, motioning over to me with his head. My wife didn't even respond to him because she is a bigger person than any of us. She didn't want to badmouth her mom, but she didn't want to get into it with my brother either. For me, everything clicked in that instant. The way he treated Olivia didn't feel like it was my business because that's his daughter, and I have no say in what goes on there. My family is different, you don't get to talk to my wife or kids like that. I felt on the defensive, and as I prepared to respond, I recognized the words. You should just write her off. Instantly, I was fifteen years old again, and Shannon was calling me gay for missing my mom. You should just write her off. He would say and then ramble off the same old tired list of reasons for why I should do so. It became clear to me that all of my mommy issues were his mommy issues. He was attempting to give those issues to his daughter. If he stayed any longer, he'd also try to give those issues to my wife. My grand expectations of him collapsed under their own weight as the foundation they were built upon began filling with holes. The wall I built around the emotions I felt toward my mother also started to crumble. I wondered if I had any unique opinions about her. Was it possible that everything I thought I felt about her had grown from seeds planted by my brother? Every bad thing I had ever heard about her, I heard from Shannon. He told me all the nasty details of your divorce, the awful things she said about me, and what people around town were saying. I was wrong about my brother, which meant I might also be wrong about my mom. If I had the kind of patience my wife has for her mother, perhaps I'd still have a relationship with mine. 
I might feel better about myself if Shannon hadn't had such a colossal influence over how I saw the world. The urge to drink again started dragging me back into the pit. As always I leaned heavily on my wife, and again she was there to pull me back out. I hadn't spoken to my mom in years. She didn't know about my kids, the military, or college. Hell, I'm not sure she even knew I had graduated from high school, and she most definitely wasn't aware that I had almost killed myself with alcoholism. I had thought about her millions of times throughout that time, but I never considered ever reaching out to her. The walls I put up were there to protect me, and I was too afraid to tear them down. But the wall had begun to crack. That wall finally broke two years later, after a fight you and I had when Jade was born. After that fight, I started looking for ways to contact my mom. A Vision Chapter 6 Part 1 Dirty Laundry My wife had placenta previa, which meant my son's placenta had fully covered her cervix, preventing any outlet to the uterus. There were serious risks to both mother and baby, so the safest option was to have a planned cesarean. Due to the high-risk nature of the pregnancy and the demands of our two-year-old daughter, we knew we would need help before and after the surgery. I had finished school and passed the licensing exam to become a clinical scientist. The local hospital hired me almost immediately, but I was paying my dues as a newbie on the graveyard shift. I was largely unavailable during the day as I tried to catch up on sleep. I called you and asked if my stepmom would be willing to stay with us for a little while until the baby came and we could establish a new routine for Pepper. She agreed, and soon she was living on an air mattress in our living room. Everything was fine, and she was an enormous help around the house. Due to Daphne's condition, her doctor told her to lay in bed and relax until the baby came, which is impossible to do with a two-year-old and a sleeping husband. My stepmom cooked and cleaned, played with Pepper, and never expressed any concerns. Unfortunately, there were things both parties wanted to complain about. We just never brought them up to each other. They were left gently simmering on low heat. When you arrived two weeks later, those issues started boiling over. Daphne was frustrated with the way my stepmom did laundry. It was a silly complaint, to be sure, but she was literally washing one outfit at a time. She would throw in a single shirt and a pair of pants. She ran the washer and dryer constantly and didn't want to wash her clothes with ours for some reason. I get it, not having her entire wardrobe and bringing clothes that require a particular clean cycle means we're going to run the machine more often. We can't always control what annoys us. We were grateful for her being there, but having roommates is hard, and sometimes even minor annoyances become significant issues. This was becoming a bigger issue for my pregnancy hormone-infused wife. A rule I have with my wife is that we deal with our own families if we have any problematic confrontations. I developed this survival technique after having several uncomfortable interactions with her family early in our relationship. Considering my wife's family all lived in the area, and my family lived much further away, it had been a rule put in place to govern interaction with her family only, but here we were, and I had to be the one to confront you. Having kids had been a dramatically life-altering experience for me, and I wanted to share what I learned with you. I was looking forward to spending time with you and asking you countless questions about fatherhood. Unfortunately, I would have to interrupt that conversation with an ungrateful-sounding complaint about the quality of the maid you had sent us. If I pulled it off right, I decided I could still have both conversations, so I invited you out to my favorite place. When I would get off work from the graveyard, Daphne and Pepper would still be asleep for another few hours, so I would drive out to the lake and sit among the cedar trees. Sometimes I'd fish on my rowboat or run the trails around the mountain. More often than not, 
I'd just sit at the end of the dock and enjoy the sounds of nature. It was a peaceful place that I loved going to. Getting to take you there meant a lot to me, but I also hoped it might put you at ease. I had so much to talk to you about that I wasn't sure where I should start in the conversation. I wanted to open with what happened at basic training and how much things had changed since getting to my new duty station. To tell you the whole story, I'd have to tell you about my addiction, and I wasn't ready to share that with you yet. I had grown so much in the past four years and was now seeing the world through the eyes of a father. When you have a small human being who is dependent on you and calls you daddy, it changes your perception of life in so many ways. The Lion King used to be a story about a boy losing his father, but since I've had kids, that story is now about a father not being there for his son. That movie was once about you and me, and now it is about me and my son. What I regret not getting to tell you that day is that I left for tech school after basic training with a new brand of unmanaged anxiety. I was completely clean of all drugs and alcohol, but I was now wound so incredibly tight by a determination to be the best. I had a taste of that sweet fatherly acceptance, and I was going to hunt that feeling down like a junkie. I didn't enjoy a second of tech school because I agonized over perfectionism every day. In the third week of tech school, you're allowed to leave the dorms and do whatever you want, so I attempted to cut loose, and a bunch of us went drinking for the first time since before basic. I wasn't actively trying to be sober. It still hadn't occurred to me that I had an addiction that was constantly trying to ruin my life. The only reason I hadn't had anything to drink was that I had been unwillingly deprived of the stuff since leaving home. Old habits die hard, and I drank that night as I did when I had a tolerance for it. It was barely 30 minutes into the night before I confessed my love for everyone. It was a Friday night, and I didn't have any responsibilities until 0200 on Saturday. I could get sufficiently plastered and be fully recovered by late next morning, long before the afternoon rolled around. I had CQ duty, which meant I would have to sit at the front desk, signing people in for a few hours. Worst case scenario, I could do that with a hangover. I got back to my dorms just before the midnight curfew. I stumbled up to my room and immediately passed out in my bed. At 0200 on Saturday, I was startled awake by the loud banging on my door. I was still very drunk, and I tried to focus my eyes on my watch in the dim light. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. Why would someone be knocking on my door? Then I heard the keys start to turn the lock in the door. Hey, Hamilton, are you in here? A voice came from the doorway. <clears throat> I cleared my throat. Yeah, just sleeping? What's going on? You have CQ Dewey. You slept in. The voice sounded annoyed but young. I was relieved it wasn't one of the training instructors. No, there's been a misunderstanding. I have it in the afternoon. The CQ sheet said I didn't have it until 2 on Saturday. I rubbed my head. Waking up after only getting a couple of hours of sleep when you're drunk is very disorienting. That would have been 1400 genius. Welcome to the military. Now get down there so I can go to bed. I could see the guy in the doorway now. He was propping my door open with his foot while motioning me down the hallway with a black flashlight that had a yellow cone covering one end. Hey listen, dude, I'm drunk. I fucked up, man. I don't know what to do. I started to panic. I had accomplished so much in my brief window of sobriety. Now, with just one night of drinking, I was about to throw everything away. The airman shrugged his shoulders and said, Ah, uh, just don't say anything, I guess. He had no skin in the game. He just wanted to go back to his room. Nah, dude, I'm still drunk. I'll get caught, and then it'll be so much worse, I said. All right. I'll go tell the T.I., I guess. I didn't protest. The only way out of this was honesty. I had to admit what happened and hope they understood my mistake. Needless to say, they did not. I was right to fess up to my mistake and was allowed to sleep it off. 
The backlash came swiftly the next day, and I was made an example in front of thousands of people during the following base commander's call. My one night of CQ duty turned into a month of CQ duty, and I cleaned things that had never been cleaned before. They were throwing around the possibility of an Article 112 and dishonorable discharge. I looked it up in the airman's manual, and it was a punishment for being drunk on duty. Interestingly, my repeating ones were guiding me again. I had been successfully wishing myself to success every time the clock hit 1, 11 or 11, 11, and now that I had royally screwed things up, I was given a sign in numerology that I had shifted off my path to 112. I took it to mean that I was almost on the right track and that it would be a simple adjustment to get back to 111. I also took it as a sign that the universe was trying to get me to stop drinking, so I didn't drink again for the remainder of tech school. Thanks to my good behavior and excellent grades, my Article 112 was dropped, and I went practically unpunished. School flew by, and as I approached graduation, I had to start looking for a place to live in California. I called a few places that fit my budget and were willing to accommodate my unique situation. I couldn't see the apartment or sign any paperwork until I arrived, but I also needed a place to stay when I got there. They would need to allow me to accomplish most of this over the phone and finish the rest later. When I found the right place, I told the lady on the other end of the line that I'd like to move in. She gave me the address, 1111 Cable Car Avenue, apartment number 11. I was so happy to hear that the universe approved my decision, and I gladly accepted the apartment. I got to my new base and met everyone at my new hospital. My supervisor, Sergeant Martino, gave me a tour and informed me that I'd immediately be headed back to school because they had a new assignment for me. As luck would have it, I wasn't going to be a secretary after all. You're going to be the drug demand reduction manager, he said. Oh, okay, what's that, sir? Being in a hospital setting, I assumed I'd have a role with pharmacy and disposing of their prescription drugs. You're going to be responsible for drug testing everyone on base and providing outreach to prevent our members from using illicit drugs, he said. Part 2. Grandfather Clock The lump in my throat felt like it may have been visible. There hadn't been a single day since I first talked to my recruiter that I hadn't stressed myself stupid worrying about my little drug secret. The drug demand reduction manager most likely maintained that mass surveillance database I feared. If I tested someone for drugs and they were positive, it'd have to go to court-martial. The defense attorney's only successful approach to getting their client off the hook would be to create doubt in the testing process. The defense would challenge the credibility of the person doing the testing focusing not only on how I process the samples but also on certain aspects of my personal life. If they could dig up some dirt on me to get their client off, they would. The anxiety I felt from my fraud complex quadrupled, and I overcompensated by working harder. Getting caught felt inevitable now, so I had to work hard enough in the meantime to build a good enough reputation that I could either erase all doubt or, at a minimum, void prosecution. I became the hardest working alcoholic the Air Force had ever seen. Alcoholism is a weird thing. I hadn't attempted to get clean. It had been forced upon me when I was denied my freedoms in basic. Leaving tech school, I was no longer dependent on alcohol. It would have been easy if I had chosen to quit for good at that time. Unfortunately, I hadn't made that choice yet, and I would have a harmless drink while watching football. Then I'd have a couple of drinks with dinner or socially with friends. Before long, I was belly up to the bar every night again. Luckily, I had so many responsibilities at work that I couldn't get blackout drunk every night as I used to. 
I worked 9 to 5 and then went to night school from 6 to 9. That schedule isn't conducive to overdrinking, but I managed to make time for it by multitasking as I began studying at the bar. With the return of my alcoholism came the return of my depression. I remembered my ultimate goal of dying on the job and returned to the work of trying to find a good way of doing so. Testing urine for marijuana didn't seem dangerous enough so I started looking at deployments. I was hell-bent on going overseas when I met Dorothy. Dorothy was a waitress at one of the bars where I liked to study. I would sit in the back of the bar with my books and read, but I'd order drinks and food regularly to justify taking up a table. Nice hat. She said as she leaned against the back of an empty chair opposite my table. She had long brown hair with golden blonde highlights curling wildly against her shoulders. She wasn't my waitress, so I realized she had come over specifically to talk to me. Thanks, I said, taking it from my head and handing it to her. She snatched it out of my hand and put it on herself as she spun on her heels and headed back to the kitchen area. Ten minutes passed before I saw her again, and she tried to give it back to me. I don't want your hat, I said. You can keep it. Seriously? She asked, holding it against her chest, wrapped in both arms. I didn't know Dorothy, but in the days following our hat conversation, I would learn that she was a free spirit who was always on the move. She had just returned from Australia, if returned from, are the right words for it. More accurately, she had been deported for some mischief she would never tell me about and was permanently banned from the country. This was her modus operandi, and when she wasn't being deported from foreign countries, she was back in California, living with friends or family until she could save enough money for her next excursion. When I gave her my hat without a second thought, she assumed I was as free a spirit as she was. She didn't know that I was a twisted ball of anxiety and depression, constantly on edge about making any mistakes that would lead to me being dishonorably discharged from the Air Force, an alcoholic wallowing in self-pity and depression, while also struggling through school to satisfy my still unimpressed brother. My spirit was trapped in a rusty cage of its own making, the door left wide open but too afraid to fly. Dorothy called me one night and wanted to go on a date. I picked her up from her brother's house, and they decided to have some fun with me. Her brother was bald, but he had a shaggy Louis Barletta-style haircut the night I met him. Maybe it was nerves, perhaps the toupee was believable, but I didn't recognize just how bad the wig was. My ignorance came off as kindness, and her brother liked me immediately. I think they hoped I would be a good influence on Dorothy and she began settling down. We went to a Mexican restaurant and drank a bunch of margaritas before smuggling more tequila into the movie theater. After the movie, we were nice and plastered, and Dorothy wanted to go to an antique shop. She removed her seatbelt and shouted directions to me over the sound of her music while dancing in the passenger seat. When we got to the antique store, the lights were off inside. Sorry Dorothy, it looks closed. I said, turning her music down. I know it's closed. Get out. She jumped out of the car and twirled in the street before running up to the store's large window. When I met her on the sidewalk, she had her face pressed against the glass with her hands cupped around her eyes, locking her reflection and allowing herself to see into the shop. There it is. She exclaimed. I followed suit and looked into the window. There were shelves of random knickknacks everywhere, and you could see from the street that there was a layer of dust covering everything. I didn't respond, I couldn't imagine what she was so excited to see. Do you see the grandfather clock in the back? She asked, the one with the acorns carved in it. It looked to be at least seven feet tall and had an elaborate wood carving of acorns and leaves that surrounded three golden weights hanging from the center. 
Yes, she said with a sly smile, adding, I want you to steal it. Steal what? The clock? What am I supposed to do? Just put it in my pocket and walk out. I laughed at her thinking she was joking, but she looked hurt. She was realizing that I wasn't as carefree or reckless as she thought. That was the last time I ever saw Dorothy. She left me for not wanting to steal a grandfather clock. I wasn't too broken up about it. Honestly, she kind of scared me. Her energy reminded me of the path I had been on before the military. She was desperately searching for something while missing most of it in a drunken haze, appearing to others as a free spirit, but never truly free racing toward death. A few years later, I heard from her brother that Dorothy had gotten into a drunk driving accident. She was in the passenger seat, likely dancing to her favorite song, when the driver swerved off the road and hit a light post. Her body was suddenly thrown from the vehicle, where she died at the scene. I went to the funeral, but it didn't feel right. They had attempted to make it a celebration of life party in her honor complete with a photo booth. With the awkward mix of joy and sorrow, I couldn't help thinking that it would have been me driving under different circumstances. I had driven drunk with Dorothy too, but my resistance to breaking and entering meant she was with someone else the night they crashed. Dorothy wasn't the only person I lost in a drunk driving accident. My cousin stole pills from our grandmother and mixed them with copious amounts of alcohol before swerving off the road and into a tree. In Texas, my friend Ricky said goodnight to his girlfriend as she was leaving the party early with her friend. She went the wrong way onto the interstate and woke up in the hospital. Her friend was driving when they left the party, but according to the police report, she was found in the driver's seat. She didn't remember leaving the party or switching seats with him, but she was now under investigation for the involuntary manslaughter of her best friend and the family of four, who all died in the crash. There's no reason other than dumb luck for my story to have not ended in a similar way. I was sharing a beer with Dorothy's brother, Oscar, soon after she left me because of my reluctance to pillage antiques. He offered me a job at a mental health facility he managed. I was studying to be a medical assistant at the time, and the job description required the skills I was learning, but the thought of working around people experiencing a mental health crisis worried me. My own balancing act on the edge of psychosis had vastly improved since the last time I had taken shrooms. Still, I was concerned that one brush of the surreal could trigger my mental collapse. After long and careful consideration, I accepted the offer and started working with some of the most fascinating people I've ever met. My fear of insanity by association was confronted on my first day of work. The aspects of my past drug abuse that I felt were my greatest weakness now served as a strength. While I had never met any of the clients before, I recognized myself in each of them. Some people were there because they were so depressed that they had been placed on suicide watch. I met people that had walked up to the line of drug-induced psychosis, but unlike me, they weren't as lucky to have stopped just before falling over the edge. I met clients that felt they had failed their families and struggled with the weight of those expectations. I realized that I had something to offer those people, and I loved every minute of that job. I also loved my coworkers. That job wasn't just emotionally demanding but also mentally and physically challenging. All too often triumphs and progress were replaced by setbacks and remission. Unfortunately, as with many social programs, the pay was garbage and the turnover rate was high. Those that stayed did so because they loved the work and the people they helped. I was surrounded by the biggest hearts that were full of love and patience. I would occasionally also work with a cute redhead who wore band t-shirts. 